Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the all-music book podcast where we turn the music book authors loose. Today we're going to dive into Van Halen Rising, how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. We have author Greg Renoff joining us. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book and to uh, join this podcast. So let me say from the outset, why a book on a world-famous band that actually ends when the band signs their first record contract? What intrigued you to write this? I grew up a, a huge fan of Van Halen. I mean, people will write books on bands and sometimes they're, they sort of are big enthusiasts of it, but they think it's an interesting topic. It happened to be that I grew up a fan, and I was one of those guys who read every guitar magazine front to back. I was a guitar player and obsessed with Eddie Van Halen, but I was one of these individuals who never quite got past the intermediate level, so I was never very good, but nonetheless, I was a big reader of articles. Went back and went to grad school, ended up getting a PhD in history, and one of the things that I ended up being really interested in is the band's beginnings when I would kind of go back and revisit my fandom of Van Halen, and I'd find out you could find a lot of information about the band's history post-1978, as you might imagine, once they became famous, but there would be all these stories or clips of little interviews that you would see where one of the guys in the band would be talking about a backyard party or someone else would be talking about the Starwood and Gene Simmons. And they, I just got interested in the topic and kind of thinking about how did this band get started. And I decided I wanted to try to do a prehistory of the band and kind of try to take the approach that if you're a fan of Van Halen, you probably know enough about the main outline of the band's history after 1978 that you probably think you know enough, whereas the early period you didn't know as much. And to be honest with you, once I started to do the interviews, I did over 200 interviews for the book, I had so much material that I had to try to find a way so that it wasn't 500 pages long. And so I decided to say, you know what, I'm just going to end it with their breakthrough. That's a high point. And it kind of that was the goal for those guys in 1976, obviously, was not to you know, necessarily play stadiums, but it was to get the record deal and just just get on the map. And so that's what they had done. And uh, so that was why I stopped it there. Well, it's a fascinating story, and as you mentioned, these backyard parties that the L.A. kids had during the period, they're just completely off the hook. It's a huge part of their story, don't you think? You know, I think the thing I didn't really realize until I got into writing the book is that the backyard parties were in a lot of ways essential for those guys breaking through. Because in 1976, 1975, 1974, I mean, nobody outside of L.A. had ever heard of Van Halen. But what ended up happening was that because Van Halen had gigged so extensively in and around Pasadena in the San Gabriel Valley, they play Altadena, they play Glendale, they play all these different cities in people's backyards or high school dances. When they finally kind of had some momentum going, they were playing on the Sunset Strip. One of the things they ended up doing was they were playing at a place called the Pasadena Civic, which is, is still there uh, on Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena. It was a kind of a general use building, and they would have concerts there, and they were working with little promoters and doing these shows. But what was happening was that they were able to draw 2,500, 3,000 people. And in fact, when Marshall Burrell, who was their first manager, and then Ted Templeman and other people who were involved with getting the band signed to Warner Brothers went to these concerts, they were just amazed that this unsigned band could attract 2,500 kids right in L.A., where... You know, there were bands playing at uh, the Santa Monica Civic that were drawing half of that that had major label deals and stuff like that. So the groundwork that those guys did for years to build a following in Pasadena was, I think, really essential to getting people who were in the music industry right before Van Halen got signed to sort of say, this is for real. This is this is legit uh, that these guys are have this type of enthusiasm uh, on a local level. And, you know, what a great way for a band to woodshed, you know, test their strengths, find out what works, what doesn't work. It's certainly a message to all the bands out there. Is there anything around similar these days, or are these things just a thing of the past? 
you know, I, I think the thing is with backyard parties is that it's just not feasible to have that type of thing go on. I think we were, it was kind of a moment there was a bunch of factors that came together. First of all, you had the, the Woodstock phenomenon where you had everything from Altamont to Woodstock to all the festivals that went on up, up north in San Francisco. There was sort of a, a sense that this was a thing to do if you liked rock music was to go to a festival and kind of come together with a huge group of people. And what ended up happening actually in Pasadena was that you had a couple of communities, particularly uh, like San Marino, which was a very wealthy community a buttress against Pasadena where there were these huge houses and these kids had these parties and they had space that was, you know, a couple of football fields in size. Some of these backyards, I mean, they were crazy big, some of these backyards because these were mansions. And so you have this Woodstock mentality and yet that people who want to put on these um, parties with their friends, you also have the, the sort of social permission of, you know, teenage drinking, drinking and driving. It was, you know, kind of the days and confused era was not quite looked upon with the same sort of hostility um, necessarily that would be in, in later decades. And so there was a, a little bit less of a, a, a police, a policing of that kind of behavior. And so there was sort of a, a w ability to get away with this to some degree. Again, I don't think it's really possible for that to sort of happen today in the same sort of way. But obviously the festival, as we've just seen with Coachella and the, all these other festivals, obviously the festival spirit still lives on. And I think that's what kind of Van Halen was doing with those backyard parties. They were just doing it with, you know, $3 a head, Kids would have a party. Their parents would be in Mexico or wherever, and then they would be able to set up a little stage, get some lights, uh, put on the show. And that was what really drove that whole impulse for uh, backyard parties. Yeah, it's possible, too, that maybe parents just got wise to all this when they went away and they'd come back and their place was trash. So but it, it, so in a nutshell, uh, Red Ball Jet, that was David Lee Ross band, right? And Mammoth was Eddie and Alex's band. And they were very competitive and played against each other, so to speak, and Suddenly, Ross says he wants in with the brothers, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm proudest of about the book is that I did dig so deep with Red Ball Jet. Uh, you know, Red Ball Jet is obviously a tiny, tiny footnote in rock and roll history. But when I sort of looked at this was Roth band, when I looked at this band and I talked, ended up interviewing three of the guys who were in the band with Roth, you kind of could see a lot of Roth's ideas that he would bring to the table in the 80s as Van Halen got bigger were ones he wanted to do in 1972, 73 in high school. He, one of the great stories about Red Ball Jet was they tried to audition at this nightclub in Hollywood, and, and Roth wanted the guys to do sort of Motown steps, sort of like you know uh, Wilson Pickett's uh, brass section would do. He wanted him to do this, and you could sort of see that in like the Hot for Teacher video where Roth had this idea that he wanted those guys to move and dance. And so you had this funky Rolling Stones style. Again, these are high school kids. Let's keep this in perspective, with David Lee Roth singing nonetheless, competing for backyard party gigs with a band called Mammoth, which was Eddie, Alex, and a bassist called Mark Stone. Eddie and Alex were cut from a very different musical cloth and rock in a lot of ways. They were much more into Black Sabbath, kind of the proggy, heavy metal, Captain Beyond. They would play uh, you know, some Zeppelin, some Who, but they were much more interested in sort of straightforward heavy metal hard rock at the time, where Roth had much more of a black Latino influences, you know, more Santana, that type of thing that Roth was more into. And so there was these different types of vibes. And of course, the other thing the Van Halen brothers had was they were far superior musicians than anything that Red Ball Jet had. So it was a very different type of thing. But yes, they had this competition. Eventually, Red Ball Jet sort of fell apart and Roth was looking for a, a, another band. And he saw the Van Halen brothers and just gravitated to them like a, a moth to the flame. He wanted to partner with those guys because he could see the musical talent. But he failed a couple of auditions initially, didn't he? 
He did. Uh, the uh, thing that I really took away from more than anything else about writing Van Halen Rising was how hard Roth worked to get himself in a position where he could become a rock star when that was his dream. Roth would, be, would tell you himself he's not a natural singer. He was never a guy who was going to be an Ian Gillen, for example, or a Robert Plant. He just doesn't have that type of vocal talent. And yes, the first couple times he auditioned for the brothers, they turned him down. Uh, and kind of took Lee in turning him down, kind of, this guy sucks, he's no good, he's a weirdo, that type of thing. But eventually, partially because Roth was uh, very savvy in how he's presented himself to those guys, and eventually because they saw that they needed a lead singer, and hey, look, Roth has some definite lead singer qualities. They could see that were, were good. He brought girls around, he knew how to get a crowd going, he was an outgoing extrovert, where Eddie and Alex were definitely not like that naturally. So they sort of, I think, kind of over, overlooked some of the other issues. Just decide that, yes, Roth has a PA system, as we all famously know. That was one of the incentives that Roth offered. He's like, I have this PA system. You guys need it. But also that Roth was a person who could who could take the frontman role away from Eddie Van Halen, who was singing, who was a guy who was so shy. People would tell me that he had this long hair at the time, that he would actually a lot of times just sing, and his hair would sort of hang down in front of his face. He'd be singing to the microphone, playing War Pigs by Black Sabbath or whatever it was. And, you know, wouldn't even push his hair out of his face because it was sort of that was, you know, the, kind of a barrier almost like didn't, you know, he was very shy and was not comfortable performing to any real extent. So he just kind of went into himself when he played, which was not something that would be engaging necessarily in the way that Roth was engaging. And after Roth joined the band, they started to do other kind of unique gigs. You know, they you write about they played for free on the steps of the Pasadena City Hall, famously hosting wet T-shirt contests and dive bars. So. My question is, how do these radically different gigs and then the backyard parties help shape the band? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that really worked for those guys, and, and I think worked for a lot of the bands of the era who were out there working as working bands, was that they had to play a lot of, first of all, top 40. To be able to play in clubs at the time, you couldn't go in there and play uh, Inagata de Vida for, for 45 minutes at a nightclub. You had to play the hits of the day. So you were in a situation where you had to learn everything from ZZ Top to Motown to anything that was on the charts that people liked. You had to learn how to do it. And so what these guys ended up doing was they would play everything from biker bars where they would play, you know, more like Foghat and stuff like that, where they would pl uh, go to other places in town where they had to play, again, a much more straightforward 70s top 40 stuff. And I think what that really did beyond those guys building up their chops, I think it was a unbelievable opportunity to learn what makes for a hit song. I'm not sure those guys have talked about that at great length, but when you sit there and you're playing number one hit after top ten hit in front of crowds, I think you, as songwriters, you start to go, oh, this is how you build a hit. This is what a great song is. So you're playing the Beatles, you're playing Led Zeppelin, you're playing all of these bands from a whole range of different genres that, from pop to harder rock, where people kind of go, wow, this is great, I love dancing to this, but at the same time as a musician, you're learning what you need to do. And so I look ahead to 1977 and working with Ted Templeman, who was a guy who was a, had a very successful track record as a producer and knew how to craft hits. Those guys had already kind of figured out how to take their hard rock sound and make it poppy, which is what Van Halen 1 really was, taking the, the heavier parts of heavy metal, the solos, the deep purple screams, to the Richie Blackmore solos, for lack of a better term, to the Black Sabbath riffs, and, and making it something that could be played on the radio that was catchy, like Feel Your Love Tonight, which has basically like Beach Boys harmonies to it. So, I mean, that to me, playing all those different things, you kind of learn how to appeal to different crowds, but also they just learned the repertoire was upwards of 200 songs. I mean, you definitely going to learn a lot about songwriting when you, when you have to know how to play 200 songs. 
And of course, uh, there's probably not a better suited uh, MC for wet t-shirt contests than David Lee Roth. I think uh, that formed his personality as well. That was one of the, the most fun parts of the book for me to write as well. I actually ended up interviewing the guy who owned this club, which is called the Long Since Gone. It was a, in Van Nuys, California called the Rock Corporation. It was, it was in a kind of an industrial CD neighborhood of Van Nuys. The, basically, the deal was they were not making enough money to keep the club going, the, the club owner. And one of the guys had been to you know, some sort of party or something and, or, uh, and, see, and hadn't seen a wet T-shirt contest. And one of the guys who worked for him was like, like we should do this. And the guy was like kind of desperate. He was like, okay. And uh, it went on for a few weeks until uh, it was busted. But yes, Roth absolutely reveled in this. And again, this is one of those things that to at the time, I think, when you have a guy like Roth who can just naturally pull into that role and could have understood that, hey, this is perfect, perfect publicity for our band. Basically, like, he, they jumped the chance to do this. I mean, some bands might have been like, nah, we don't, whatever, don't want to do that. But those guys actually jumped at the chance to do something like that, to be around all these bikers, which was at times, from what I understood from reading interviews with those guys, not the most comfortable situation, as Alex Van Halen famously said, you know, like, you're basically like, if you don't play this song again, I'm going to wrap a chain around your neck while you play the drums, and then you're going to play the song. It's, it's you know, it's, these guys were not, you know, these, the, the crowds were intimidating, and they were rough, and, and these guys yet kind of reveled in it and said, yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely play for a crowd full of Hells Angels in a wet t-shirt contest in the, in a bad neighborhood in, in Van Nuys. So, yes, those were, and the, the kind of the publicity that came out from that, because they're, the, the Vice Squad in L.A. eventually shut these things down. It was, you know, big big bragging rights. So, yeah, we played the wet t-shirt contest. It got shut down by the cop in a bar. And definitely the dive bars, and, uh, and then they move up to Gazari's, which they were the house band at on Sunset Strip. And, and that, that was sort of out of fashion at the time, I think. Is that right? Yeah. So the thing about Gazari's is that uh, as a child of the 80s, I heard a lot about Gazari's from bands like Warrant and Poison and these other bands that would play there. And it, it, you know, it was sort of a, a landmark at that point for 80s glam metal, for lack of a better term. And uh, at the time, though, in the 70s, Gazaris had sort of passe. In the late 60s, it was on, you know, something that'd be like TV shows filmed at Gazaris. It was a place where you would have the Gazaris dancers. It was sort of this go-go dancing place. But by 73, 74, it was, I wouldn't say it died, but it was a place that you, if you were a real band that was trying to get somewhere, you wouldn't play there because it was a dead end. You could only play covers at Gazaris. You couldn't really play original music. And so no uh, record company executive was going to go to Gazaris and go, hey, these guys play ZZ Top or they play whatever. They're, you know, they're doing a really, a really amazing job playing this uh, BTO song, so I'm going to sign them to a record deal. You know, it was, it was not a place where you could showcase your, your originals, which was actually a record deal. So it was sort of seen as this, you know, you got paid almost nothing down the block from the whiskey, but it was worlds away from a place where the biggest band in the world would play at the whiskey when they would come to L.A., whereas bands like Gazaris, you just walk three blocks away and it was like another planet where your, these bands were going nowhere. And they do finally make the whiskey, and that's a stop that every band has to make on their way up. And it's right about this time that they start getting some notice from Rodney Bingenheimer, the legendary club owner, and then members of the all-girl group Runaways were, were big fans. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that was really important also to think about with Roth. I mean, uh, you know, the band was great, so the music kind of spoke for itself, but I think Roth was a guy who knew how to, to work these people. He He was the guy who... I think was kind of instrumental in getting Rodney Bingenheimer interested, kind of talking to Rodney. I know it was, because Rodney talked about it, that basically Rodney actually saw them at Gazari's and was like, these guys are pretty good. And he's like, you know, kind of talked to them after the show. He's like, you know, hey, if you guys, you have any original songs? Like, I like your, your band. And Roth talked to them, and eventually Bingenheimer was the guy who got them an audition at the Starwood, the infamous Starwood Club, which is, again, a place where you could play original music but and was a step up away from Gazari's, but still wasn't the whiskey. And then later... Thing I love about the story with Bingenheimer 
is that when Gene Simmons tries to get Van Halen a record deal and is unsuccessful, Van Halen has to come back to L.A. from New York with a tail between their legs, basically saying, hey, Gene Simmons didn't get us a deal, and he's the biggest rock star in America. But uh, Rodney Bingenheimer had Van Halen on the radio, had, excuse me, had Roth on the radio playing the demo for Running With The Devil. And if you listen on YouTube to the, the clip of that, that radio conversation, someone recorded it, Roth doesn't, you know, Roth doesn't talk about it. They didn't get a record deal. It's like, we got this demo. We went to New York and recorded this demo and kind of, in, and Rodney's like, oh yeah, you know, Rodney was a hype guy. And, Roth, you know, Roth kind of, kind of used his charisma and his ability to sort of be the rock star before he really was a rock star to get Rodney engaged. And to Rodney's credit, Rodney saw the talent and was willing to do kind of what I'm saying that really before no one really was willing to do. It's kind of like going, hey, this cover band, these guys are good. I like these guys. And he just thought it was, they were amusing and with Roth was great with the, the girls and the audience. And they just, yeah, they got him into, uh, into Starwood and then eventually they got to whiskey. And that was, uh, the kiss manager, Bill Acoin, right? Who you're talking about that turned them down. Right. So famously, the story is that Bill Acoin saw those guys in New York. Basically Gene Simmons did a demo tape with them. He wanted to sign them to correctly. Gene's plan was he wanted to do a kind of a Kiss subsidiary label, much like the Beatles at Apple. He wanted to Kiss, Kiss to have a, a record label where they would have bands on this label and they would they would take a cut of it. So he brought them to New York and he showed them to Bill Coin and they auditioned at SIR Studios in New York City, meaning Van Halen, on Kiss's equipment. So Eddie's trying to play through Ace's guitar rig. Alex is trying to play through Peter's drums and it didn't go particularly well. They were out of their element. And so the the story continues the next day or two. All coin said, well, come in and see me. And then basically said, hey, you guys have no commercial potential. Uh, you know, hey, maybe Eddie and Alex could do something with you guys. You guys seem to have some, some musical ability. But Dave, I mean, you know, I just don't don't see think you're any good, basically. Basically, in front of all of those guys in his Madison Avenue office, told the band, yeah, Roth's kind of the weak link. I mean, he was very honest, apparently brutally honest. And you can imagine how rough that was for Roth to sit there and be like, we, you know, we're on, we have Gene Simmons and are backing us. And Basically, Kiss's manager is going, yeah, you're the problem. I don't like you as a singer or a frontman. And so, yeah, that was uh, November of 1976. And then February of 1977, Ted Templeman sees them at the Starwood. And the rest is history. They get a record deal with Warner Brothers. So just four months later, after after Al Coyne's like, ah, I don't like these guys at all, Ted Templeman's like, these guys are great. I want these guys. I have to have these guys on Warner Brothers. But Simmons' motives weren't entirely pure either, right? He had the brothers play on Love Gun, was it, or Christine 16, without David Lee Roth. And there's rumors that that is them on the finished track, right? Yeah, I mean, I, so, so Gene has released the uh, finished track on, on the box that I've actually heard them in. I think that the rumor can be put to rest, which was something that was whispered about by people who were in Van Halen's camp who saw the session and basically then later heard the recordings and think maybe that Eddie solo ended up on the record, meaning Love Gun, but it's, it's not. It's a different solo, but nonetheless, yes. Yeah. So after Gene comes back from touring with Kiss, and this is April 1977, Van Halen already has a record deal with Warner Brothers. Gene calls up Eddie and Alex and says, hey, would you guys play on some demos? I'm going to be at Village Recorder Studios in L.A. here. Would you come and play on the demos? And they do. Roth was always extremely suspicious of the fact I mean, basically from the get-go, once Gene was sort of still calling Eddie and Alex, he was very suspicious that he wanted to steal those guys away, kiss or something, which I kind of find not plausible. But nonetheless, I, I can understand why Roth would be worried that someone was going to try to take those guys away from him, uh, because obviously Eddie and Alex had this incredible musical connection, and Eddie was just an unbelievable guitar player. But uh, yeah, so his, you know, his motives may not have been totally pure, but I don't, I don't, I don't think in 1977, when Kiss is the biggest band in the world, that Gene and Paul were going to like, we'll put these two unknown guys in the band and we'll, you know, we'll continue on our way. I don't think that was going to be the, the real deal as much as they might have hated 
the way that Ace and yeah, that would come much later when Kiss would do that. But um. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Uh, you know, one of the things I love about your book, as far as rock prototypes or even stereotypes go, I don't know if you could craft a better lead singer than David Lee Roth, a better frontman, or a, a better lead guitarist as Eddie Van Halen. They were just perfect, you know, and they obviously grew into that role. In your book, obviously, which is a prehistory, very, very early on, you could see those characteristics of those two in particular. Yeah, and I think the thing, too, as a rock historian, a fan of Van Halen. I mean, it was always a given that Eddie Van Halen had this enormous talent and that Van Halen never could have been Van Halen without Eddie's guitar playing. I mean, that was kind of a given. But one of the things I thought was really illuminating as I did the interviews was I talked to people who were, I mean, right there when this was going on, people who were friends with Roth, who, who threw back air parties, who hung out with these guys at, after high school, 76, 75, and talked about how Roth was continually trying to get Eddie to kind of get out of his shell. One of those great stories I loved was uh, one of the guys who hung around Roth all the time talked about how Eddie was, I guess, famous for cutting his own hair. You know, they sort of like this uh, Jeff Spicoli uneven haircut, like, you know, just cutting it in the mirror. Those guys didn't have a lot of money, and so they would cut their own hair. And so Roth eventually got Eddie to go get a haircut at a salon. I guess this was like a huge, huge deal that Eddie was going to do this. And so Roth prepped all the guys in this circle of friends to be like, when Eddie comes around, be sure you say his hair looks good and be serious. And like all these guys are like, oh, you look great. Like kind of trying to get him to kind of take on that rock star identity from moving on stage. Roth would talk, tell, get those guys to move. I mean, Eddie would stand stock still not moving. He's like, you got to move. You got to jump. You got to, you know, got the music has to sound like it looks. We need you guys, meaning Michael and Eddie to be more frenetic on stage and got Eddie to do that. And so to me, yeah, I mean, Roth sort of grew into the role, but I think Roth from the start had sort of had the vision for what he wanted Van Halen to be like in some sense, where I think Eddie had to be brought along to what we saw in 1978 and later with the with the incredible stage shows and the, just the, the athletic type of performance that they would put on. There's a great quote in your book, and it's obviously a very deeply researched book, but there's a guy who recalls seeing Eddie play 
And the quote was, I was standing around with a bunch of guitar players while Eddie was playing, and you could tell the guitar players were the ones with their mouths open. And I think that perfectly encapsulates, you know, his skill set at such a young age. Yeah, that was another really, as a guy who grew up, again, striving to be a talented guitarist uh, as a high school kid in the 80s and was unsuccessful. I really wanted to try to reach out to some of the guys, like, for example, Mark Kendall of Great White. And the quote that you read is from Tracy G., who was in Dio in the early 90s. And, and these guys grew up, they were a little bit younger than Eddie Van Halen, so they would go to these parties and go to these clubs and see. And Tracy was great because, you know, had the mind of a guitar player. And he'd be like, yeah, he was like basically like telling me these stories. He'd say that he would practice super hard. And he'd say, maybe I've gotten a little bit closer. And then he said he would go to... Um, the whiskey and Eddie Van Halen had started using the uh, tremolo bar. Eddie had had not really used a tremolo bar; it always been sort of a Les Paul style fixed bridge. And then, so Tracy'd be like, "Damn, you know." Now he's like doing these incredible things with the whammy bar, which, by the way, wasn't the locking neck like the later with the Floyd Rose, where you could sort of do whatever you want. It would go out of tune. Like Hendrix had that problem, and Eddie was keeping the tune, and and Tracy was amazed. And so Tracy sort of went back and sort of was practicing more. And then, in like a few weeks later, he goes back and sees, and Eddie's doing the. It's really the eruption style two-handed tapping where he's really perfected it. And basically, Tracy's like, "You're never gonna, I'm never, you know, never gonna catch this guy." It's just that he said that was constantly what it was that Eddie always was kind of pushing, whether it was riffs, coming up with better riffs, better leads, better techniques, the stripes in the guitar. There was always something that was kind of keeping him to be heads and shoulders above. Or you know, Randy Rhodes, George Lynch, all these guys who were on the scene, uh, who were good guitar, very good professional guitar players who went on to, to great success for we're going to be um, a step behind Eddie. I have to say, David Lee Roth, I think, comes across really, really well in your book. Um, much is made of his well-to-do background, but you know, he was out in front promoting the band and, and working on their style and maybe pushing Eddie to be more of a front man. I mean, that guy worked his ass off, didn't he? Yeah, one of the real interesting things about Roth is Roth came from this background where his father purchased the house that Roth lives in now in Pasadena, this 20-room uh, Italianate mansion, which is uh, like a, basically a historic landmark. I mean, it's this incredible house. So you can imagine that Eddie and Alex are living in a two-bedroom house in Pasadena, tiny, kind of a galley kitchen. I mean, it would be one of these post-World War II houses that you'd walk into today that people would probably scrape. They'd be like, I don't want to live in this house. It's too it's too small. Um, and then, you know, they end up with this guy who comes from this incredible privilege in some sort of way. But yeah, Roth, I mean, again, Roth really got down and did the stuff. I mean, you know, hauling the gear. Roth never set himself apart in that sort of way. And he deserves a tremendous amount of credit because he put himself, as you said, into the business of promoting and working it without falling back on, well, you know, I, I, you know, I can just live off my dad for the rest of my life. And Roth really was not going to want to do that. He wanted to make it on his own. And so, yeah, I really have a lot of admiration, admiration for Roth. I mean, the other thing I would say, of course, is that the house itself was advantageous because it gave those guys a place to practice. So, they woodshedded and wrote songs in the basement and told by a number of people from Pete Angelus, who was Roth's right-hand man in his solo career and had been with Van Halen since 1977, that you could go in the house there in Pasadena and be standing in the kitchen. This is Roth's mansion, and you could barely hear what was going on in the basement. The, the basement was so, like, densely concreted. The roof was, you know, they had, like, a concrete roof and a concrete floor, so it was like almost like a, a crypt down there. So it was, you know, a place where you could practice around the clock and those guys had this workspace where they could really do that along with the, you know, on the fact that they had a guy like Roth who again was right there with those guys willing to work. You know, it's funny though, in a, in a perhaps a nod of things to come, uh, there's a hilarious story in your book. Uh, I'll call it the no milk episode. Do you want to fill us in on that? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that's the Pete Angela story where he said that uh, he walked into the house. I think it was the first time he ever walked into the house to to meet Roth. So Pete Angelus, who would go on, and for people who don't know, uh, I always think he's one of the true unsung heroes of, of Van Halen's success. He was the guy who did all the light shows, then later directed the videos along with Roth was uh, in front of the camera. Pete was behind the camera directing these videos, whether it be for Jump, Hot for Teacher, Panama. All the Roth solo videos were done by Angelus, and Angelus, the first time he went to Roth's house after they had met, this was before Van Halen had become big in 77, that he walked in the kitchen. I remember correctly, some, he'd like taken a supposedly spray paint and written on the cabinet, no milk or something, because he was mad. I don't know, the housekeeper hadn't gotten milk or something for him, and, 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 and like Ross, like, Ross in the basement, and Pete comes down, and he's like, hey, man, uh, I got to ask you, like, what's the deal with the cabinet? He's like, well, we're out of milk. He's like, couldn't you just like leave a note on the table or something? And and so I, I you know, I always thought maybe maybe Pete was slightly exaggerating that story. Maybe it was a pen or something, a Sharpie or something. But nonetheless, that was, yeah, the story that, that Roth decided to put this gigantic, uh, unmissable note because he was mad there was no milk in the fridge. A great story that ties probably to the brown M&M story. Absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, the other thing with Roth is he had just unbelievable survival skills. You know, I mean, we mentioned Gene Simmons and Bill O'Coin, but didn't Ted Templeman, the producer of the first record, also want him out? I'm working on finishing Ted's authorized autobiography, which will come out next year via ECW Press, which I'm very excited about. I worked with Ted for three, four years on this book. What I would say that Ted will tell you is that when Ted signed the band, when he first heard Van Halen, he said he was barely focused on Roth. I mean, he said, like, you know, look, Roth looked like he was a good performer, but he wasn't completely focused on the singing because he said the guitar playing was so incredible. So it was sort of like, yeah, okay, this guy may not be the best vocalist when he first saw them perform live, but it doesn't matter because we got this guitar player in these songs. He said that after they did the, the demo, so after Van Halen gets a record deal, Ted wants to have a work tape that they can start to think about what to put on an album. So he has them do about 25 songs on a recording. And Ted said when he listened back to the recording, he was very concerned because Roth was pitchy. Roth was, was certainly a guy who struggled vocally in a lot of ways. And again, in a live situation, probably not as noticeable when you have the movement and the flash and they have the songs and, and Roth's doing his thing. But he said in the studio, it really was very noticeable. So he was concerned that he didn't think he could get Roth to rise to the level of, of ability needed to be able to sound good on record. And so he tells me, he talked to a couple of people, and he thinks he may have told Don Landy, the engineer, and maybe talked to Mo Austin about it, kind of just molded over, like maybe I call Sammy. He never told the band, and he never did call Sammy. What am I gonna do here? And But he said that after he got to know Roth more, over the weeks that followed, he said that Roth had the intellect. He knew that Roth was going to work hard because Roth was an extremely hard worker. And he said, that, he said at the time, he said those guys were, were the best to work with because they were just like, whatever you want, Ted. Like they were very much focused on the fact that they had the record deal. They had a guy who had a record of, of working with everyone from, look, from Carly Simon to the Doobie Brothers to Little Feet. This guy was a, a hit making producer and they, they trusted Ted. And so he said, I'm going to, you know, let's give this guy a try. And he said to Roth's credit, Roth worked to improve, got better, and basically Ted's coaching in the studio, they were able to put together the, the vocals for Van Halen 1, and of course they're, they were spectacular in how it all came out, and Roth really, I think, shows that a vocal style that's identifiable is, is much more important in some ways than being an incredible singer, as Ted has observed to me, you know, you could find 25 people on Broadway right now who have the most amazing voices, you say they're just spectacular singers, but they're not identifiable, like you couldn't pick one out like which one is this one you couldn't pick it out Roth you know it's Roth immediately when Roth starts singing and he said that's the thing that, 
that also eventually dawned on Ted too, is that Roth had a, for better or for worse, had something that was, would stand out on the radio. The last David Lee Roth story, your book is full of them. And, um, you know, they say payback is a bitch. And I know that Van Halen, after they got huge, David Lee Roth got a little bit of payback on Simmons regarding backstage passes. One of the things that, uh, comes full circle is that I believe in August 1977 if I remember correctly Kiss is playing at the Forum with Cheap Trick and this is the peak Kiss moment so very hard to get tickets Gene to say thank you to Van Halen says I've left tickets for you guys kind of passes the word to Eddie and Alice of tickets come on down so Eddie and Alice bring their dates and Roth went down to the Forum and then supposedly the story is there were tickets left for some of the guys in Van Halen but not for Roth basically they're like no there's no ticket with an envelope that says David Lee Roth on it so, 1977, so Roth sulks away, obviously, from the Forum, humiliated. And so, 1984 rolls around, and Van Halen is coming to the Forum. This is now, Van Halen is the biggest band in the world, and Kiss is sort of an also-ran in the world of rock. And so, I guess Roth called Gene's office, hey, if you want, come on down to the, come on down to the Forum. I got tickets for you. You know, come down or whatever, I'll let you in. And so, Gene went down there, and uh, when Gene got there, there were no tickets for Gene Simmons. So, that was the, that was the payback, yeah. So. Classic classic well this seems like a good place to end the subtitle of your book is how a southern california backyard party band saved heavy metal can you tell us how and why you think they did sure yeah i think one of the more engaging parts of the response to the book has been people talking about what is heavy metal i had a lot of people who would sort of immediately tell me like that i was not the van halen kind of heavy metal band and you know i i went to great pains to try to explain to people that i when i said heavy metal i was talking about heavy metal circa 1977. So if you picked up Cream Magazine in 1977, 78, they would say the state of heavy metal, they would have Queen, they would have Led Zeppelin, they would have Kiss, they would have Deep Purple, they would have what, whatever other bands, 76, this era of, of the sort of, what at the time was called heavy metal. And so what I wanted to try to lay out with the title was that at the moment when Van Halen broke through on the radio in 1978, there was really a sense in the music industry that that type of hard rock music, the guitar solos, the screams, the heavy rhythms, was kind of passe, that bands like Mountain, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, I mean, even Zeppelin to some extent was sort of seen as this, the dinosaurs. I mean, they were still a huge band, but they were sort of this, this is, you know, this is the past. So what the future was going to be was new wave slash punk, or Sex Pistols, uh, disco, and even soft rock. I mean, at the time, of course, the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt are playing stadiums. That was sort of seen as the, the what was building towards something bigger people thought and especially the, the punk and the new wave and disco and so what I, i've tried to make the case for in the book is that a lot of these other bands that came out at the time whether they be acdc the scorpions judas priest who all had records out in 78 or so none of those records really connected now later of course those bands would all be huge and these those certainly those records in some ways resembled what van Halen was doing in some sort of general sense but van Halen was the only band that sold two million records got their music on the radio were able to play in stadiums and actually upstage Black Sabbath. I mean, that's the other thing that's really interesting is there's this passing of the torch where you have this reinvention of heavy, hard rock, heavy metal, whatever you want to call it, where they basically, Van Halen trimmed out all the fat, where Sabbath would play these six, seven-minute songs. Van Halen was never going to play a seven-minute song uh, and put it on the record. It was always going to be a three, three-and-a-half-minute song, very focused, very tight, playing with a band that still did that type of long-form jammy, hard rock, heavy metal, meaning Sabbath. And so you had this moment of passing the torch. And so that's what I was trying to make the case that these guys could have raised the torch for that type of music at a time when it was seemed like it was going to die off. And really, they sustained it into the early 80s. And so you saw that basically the Us Festival, where that sort of, again, that poppy Van Halen style heavy metal, along with the Scorpions and Judas Priest, became huge. 375,000 people show up at the Us Festival to see Heavy Metal Day, 
where something like 150,000 people and then 80,000 people went to the New Wave Day and the, I don't know, the Rock Night Day or whatever the other day was on the, the 83 weekend. So where, where the, the style of music that Van Halen was, was pushing had become the biggest, in some ways, marketable uh, brand out there. Well, I did see that 78 tour, and I, I can verify that Van Halen just kicked Black Sabbath's ass all over the stage. It was embarrassing. Where did you see them? Uh, down in Miami, where I grew up. Awesome. Yeah, so did you see them at Sportatorium? Exactly, exactly. Well, his book is Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. I'd like to thank Greg Renoff for showing up and fill us in on these stories. And um, we'd love to have you back when your book is out on Ted Templeman. That sounds like a good read as well. Yeah, it'll be out in spring of 2020. I spent innumerable hours talking to Ted about this, and Ted's going to track his whole career back from his beginnings in Santa Cruz, where he was sort of a jazz phenom, to being a pop star in the 60s with Harper's Bazaar, all the way up through his final years at Warner Brothers in the 90s. And so it kind of tracks the rise of Warner Brothers Records along with his career as a producer. So I'm, I'm really excited. Ted's a great guy and had great stories, and it was just a, it was a real amazing experience for me to be able to work on the book with him. So yeah, I would love to come back. Well, that sounds awesome. This is the book that Van Halen fans want to read. Uh, I've read it. Uh, you may think, well, it ends right when I want to know about all the good stuff. This is the good stuff. It's a great book. Great job, Greg, and thanks for coming on. Hey, no problem. Thanks a lot for having me. I'd like to thank our guest, Greg Renoff, the author of Van Halen Rising. If you're a Van Halen fan or a heavy metal fan, this is the book you want to read. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. You can buy it through our site. We'd appreciate that, and so would Greg. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcast episodes. I'd like to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Steve Folsom, who can be found at www.fullsound.com. Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music that we play throughout the podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please remember to support your local independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.